this morning. Um, if you remember, if you were here last week, we were talking about Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and how the season of Lent is sort of this liturgical, symbolic joining of Jesus in the wilderness. And we talked how, uh, about how often when God wants to move us from an old orientation to a new orientation, God has to take us through a season of disorientation. And in the Bible, the name for this is wilderness. It's this place where our maps no longer function, right? Or as Rebecca Solnit says, it's when the world has suddenly gotten larger than our knowledge of it. We call it terra incognita, the unknown land, where we're functionally lost. This is the wilderness. And this, this phenomenon is, is um, it's common. It happens to everyone. It's just a normal part of discipleship. In fact, one of the ways I understand my vocation as a pastor is I am part wilderness guide. That's sort of, that's what I do. I try to spend as, a lot of time in the wilderness. Be brave. Because I know you guys are going to be in the wilderness and sometimes you're going to need someone who's been there before. And I think Christians are, are supposed to be the one group of people who have spent enough time in the wilderness, they know how to navigate and they're not afraid. They have um, these competencies that, that make, um, for what Stanley Harawa says, he says, the wilderness for, is for learning how to go on when you don't know where you are. And we should be good at that. Um, and God leads us through the wilderness to, toward a new orientation, a new map of reality for what Jesus called the kingdom of God. And this, this is what we work on during this season of Lent. Um, real quick show of hands. Um, how many of you have watched or are watching the HBO series Station Eleven? Anyone? Oh man, it's not as many as I thought. Raise high, raise high if I, if, okay, just a few. I, okay, then I'll go with the non-spoiler version. I had a more of a spoiler version, but I'll go with the non-spoiler version because um, I, I want this, this um, show to kind of speak to us. It's a fascinating show. It's just one season, 10 episodes um, about a worldwide pandemic. But get, get this, it's based on a book that was written in 2014, long before our pandemic. And they started shooting this in January of 2020, just like two months before the big um, international worldwide shutdown. Can you imagine? They were, they were filming a show about a worldwide pandemic when a worldwide pandemic hit. It's completely bizarre. And I'll try not to, to spoil it, but I kind of want Station Eleven to, um, to spark our imaginations today. Even though it's a bit grim, I have to say. Um, if you start watching it, I highly recommend you watch it. Um, but, I mean, buckle up, because the very first thing that happens is that they kill off 99% of the world's population. That's not really a um, spoiler. Like, that, that happens from the get-go. It's just this horrible pandemic. They just hit it with you in, in episode one. Death on an unimaginable scale. Um, and then embedded within the narrative of Station Eleven is this graphic novel that's being created by one of the characters in, in the story. She wrote this beautiful, poetic, mysterious, um, apocalyptic tale as a way of reconciling with her own past and a trauma from her past. I remember damage, she says. That's one of the big lines of the opening line of the story. So she writes this, this story to, to try to come to terms with her own trauma. And there, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's not really the story, but it's a story within the story. I remember damage, she says, and escape. 
been adrift in a stranger's galaxy for a long time, but I'm safe now. I found it again, my home. It's really quite, quite beautiful. They do a really great job with it. And the, the graphic novel becomes almost like a character in the show. What happens is that the author self-publishes a handful of copies. She gives, gives them out to just a few of her friends. A week later, this pandemic hits. and Billions of people perish. And then the, the twist is, two of the survivors, um, two children, are people who were given a copy of this book, Station Eleven. They don't know each other. They're in completely different places and situations. But they were given this book. The pandemic hits. And in the aftermath, they both become a little bit obsessed with this, with this book, with the story. They read it over and over. They, just, you, they always catch them staring at it, looking at the pictures for hours. And you start to realize this comic book, this graphic novel, written by one of the characters in, in the show just to help herself survive her own trauma, this book is helping these kids survive their trauma of living through this pandemic. They're using the story to help get them through, to help them make sense of what is happening, and it begins to give them a new imagination for the world, a new way to navigate the wilderness. Um, it's almost like a story within a story within a story, all about terra incognita, about the wilderness. You know, dystopian shows, they're kind of, they're a big deal right now. Um, Hunger Games, Blade Runner made a new one, Handmaid's Tale, Snowpiercer, Walking Dead, stuff like that. They're big. And if you've watched any of these, um, you know um, that they all sort of imagine what will happen after the catastrophe. What they think is that everyone will just divide into factions and go to war and just terrorize each other. I mean, they're, they're all incredibly brutal and violent, kind of in, sometimes in really twisted ways. And so sort of the gambit of Station Eleven is that most post-apocalyptic stories get something fundamentally wrong about that experience. Like when the stories go all Mad Max or all The Matrix with just death and destruction and ever escalating violence, they're, they're missing something, they're getting something wrong. And Station Eleven dares us to imagine that instead of turning to violence, um, people would turn to stories. That instead of tearing each other apart, people would begin to produce works of art, music, paintings, novels, plays, poetry, images, stories. And it's kind of fascinating to me, this, this move that they make. I haven't seen it anywhere before. The, sh the show just imagines that at a time of deep disorientation, what normal everyday people will do is turn to music and art and storytelling to help them navigate this kind of post-apocalyptic wilderness and make sense of it all and to find that sense of hope for the future. The creator and, and showrunner is this guy named Patrick Somerville. And he said, I'll just put it this way. If you lose billions at the top, you don't need anyone else to die for your story. You, can go, you, you can't go back to that well for drama. That's pretty smart, I think, actually. Because it recognizes in a sense, the grace of catastrophe, if you can say that, which is that the, the catastrophe, um, in, in a catastrophe, things are so wrecked that there's finally no pretending that everything's fine. Because, and because it starts in this really kind of dark place, then he felt like he was free then to tell a hopeful story 
about kind of the world-bending power of kindness and tenderness and goodness, even in the midst of a really dark time. So Station Eleven, it's interesting. You should watch it. It may get one of your Lenten disciplines. It's this way of imagining <laughs> what would happen if a pandemic like hit, brought unimaginable death and destruction to the world. And their answer is, it's not what you think. It's not like the rest of the movies you've seen like this. It's not that we'll tear each other apart, but that we'd tell stories, sing songs, perform plays, recite poems, and read books to help us make meaning out of the painful realities of the wilderness. The decades after Jesus died were a catastrophe for the Hebrew people. These three Jewish factions were vying for power for their future. The Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, they fought each other in the Romans. And then this fourth faction emerged, the Zealots, kind of a a violent ultranationalist group, tried everything from vandalism to assassination to start a war with Rome. And the violence escalated until Rome came in with their military. And from AD 66 to 70, the Jews fought a terrible war with the Romans culminating in, of course, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, um, the fall of Jerusalem. 1.1 million people died, most of them Jews. Another 100,000 were enslaved. And then the era known as the Jewish diaspora began. Diaspora means dispersion. The Jewish people were scattered all around the Mediterranean, all the way south into Africa, all the way north past Turkey into modern-day Ukraine, which is interesting. In Eastern Europe. And in this mix was a small Jewish sect known as the Christians. In Jerusalem, they were led by Peter and James and John. In the diaspora, they were named by this kooky ex-Pharisee named Paul, starting Christian communities everywhere. And one of Paul's closest companions was a physician, a doctor, named Luke. Luke traveled with Paul serving the poor everywhere they went as a, as a physician and as a, a teacher. And as the Roman um, persecution escalated, the suffering did as well. So Luke had plenty of work to do. And the leaders of the church were rounded up and tortured or killed. And by 70 AD, really, we think only John was left of the original 12. Christians were scattered among the diaspora with the Jews. It was an apocalypse The end of the world as they knew it, a catastrophe. But the response of these little Christian communities that were scattered about was not to divide into factions and tear each other apart. Not totally. There's a little bit of that if you read Paul. It's really not the main thrust of what happened. Instead, they began a period of incredible creativity. They wrote songs and hymns. They constructed liturgies and prayers, um, innovating brand new forms of worship and new modes of catechism and discipleship. And Luke, this physician and disciple of Paul, was part of that creative work. Luke had a friend named Theophilus. We don't really know who, who it is. He's lost to history. We do know that Luke began to write an account of the life of Jesus and the early church, and he addressed it to his friend Theophilus, saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So in the chaos, following the death of Christ and the catastrophic wars with Rome, Luke was part of this creative movement. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. They were originally probably one work in in two volumes, Luke-Acts, which together make up like a quarter of the New Testament, more than any other writer, even Paul. Along with the other Gospels, Mark, John, Matthew, and the writings of Peter and James and, and Paul, Luke's writings helped galvanize the early church and mold um, kind of this baffled, cowering group of Christ followers into a dynamic, um, dynamic community that faced down empires and literally um, changed the course of human history. And they did this not by might, not by power, but by this spirit-led reimagination of what it means to be human in light of the life-teaching death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. In the first two centuries after Christ's death, there was this massive burst of creativity in the early church. That was their response to catastrophe. And it became a powerful catalyst for the spread of Christianity and for this new, new vision for how to organize the world called the kingdom of God. Our text that we read earlier comes from Luke's writing, chapter 13. Starts in verse 31 where it says, At that time some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. To which Jesus replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. It's kind of defiant here. Which is striking given what we know about all of the Herods. You know, the, the first Herod, the one he's talking about here, it's, this is his father. The first Herod, Herod the Great, was a vassal king under Caesar. He ruled down in, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Her, and Herod the, the Great, we talk about a lot, he was very powerful and cruel, universally despised. He was very harsh and violent with the Jewish people and taxed them into poverty. And the older he got, more powerful and the more paranoid and homicidal he became. And although he had a huge family, like 43 kids with 11 different wives, he died with no clear line of succession. Um, if you remember, Herod the Great was, was the one who came after Jesus in Bethlehem. Their family had to flee to Africa. That's Herod the Great. And then all three of his sons after he died, well, three main sons, were vying for the throne. Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. When I read these, it always reminds me of George Foreman, the boxer, you know. He had four sons and named all of them George. Remember that? So Herod, Herod's doing the same thing here. He names them all the same and gives them all the same shot at the title. And so, um, after Herod the Great died, they three all traveled to Rome to meet with Caesar and sort things out. And these guys were, they were not good guys. In fact, they were um, so universally hated that the Pharisees sent this big delegation of 50 Pharisees all the way to Rome, a dangerous journey, um, to oppose, to beg Caesar not to give them the throne. Of course, Caesar ignored them, 
And what he did is split the region into four kingdoms. He gave Archelaus two of them, Judea and Jerusalem, in the south. He gave Philip the east, the Decapolis. You might have heard that in Paul. It's the Ten Cities area. And then he gave Antipas Galilee, including Nazareth and Cana and Capernaum and, and where Jesus grew up and most, most of his ministry was. And he called them tetrarchs. It means quarter kings ruling these four regions. Archelaus ruled down in the south and he got back to Jerusalem about the time of the Passover and immediately picked a fight with the Jews and, and did it at the temple with all those people there, ended up killing 3,000 Jews in the temple. Sort of set the tone for his administration. He terrorized the Jews in Judea. If you remember, um, the whole reason that Mary and Joseph um, moved up to Galilee instead of settling down in Judea where, with Joseph's family was that, it says, Archelaus was ruling in Judea and he was a nutter. And so Jesus had this dream, this, or Joseph had this dream saying, take them up, up to um, Galilee to avoid this guy. When the delegation of Pharisees, having failed, came back from Rome, Archelaus sent word and said, can, can we just meet together? And they thought he wanted to kiss and make up. Instead, he had them all killed and forced all the nobles to watch. And so many, many years later, as Luke was writing his account of the gospel. He described Jesus telling this story when he would teach from Luke 19. A man of noble birth went into a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them all manah, 10 manah. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. And then the end of the parable says, those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and let me kill them in front of me. So Luke's readers knew the history. This wasn't just a random made-up parable. They knew he was talking about Herod Archelaus, this, this cruel and unjust ruler of Judea. Archelaus was bad. Um, and so his reign really didn't last long. Rome kicked him out. He was replaced by Caponius for a little while. He was replaced in two years by a name you might know, Pontius Pilate followed him. Meanwhile, up in Galilee, where Jesus lived, the ruler was Herod Antipas. And Antipas was kind of funny. He like acted tough, but was, I mean, kind of prissy, I guess you would say. Um, he married the daughter of his enemy, um, king Eratos, his kingdom bordered Galilee. So this was a political marriage to keep the peace. And um, it worked until Antipas fell in love with his brother Philip's wife. A woman named Philip, Philip, Herod Philip had married a woman named Herodias, which is when like the Galilean soap opera, Days of Our Lives, started. Um, you may remember part of this story. Um, Herod Antipas and Herodias um, fall in love, even though she's married to his brother, and they want to get married, but they're both, you know, already married. He, too, King Eratos' daughter. Um, she, too, Herod Philip, one of the quarter kings, Antipas's own brother. Also, she was a, a daughter of one of the other 42 siblings, right? And so um, this meant that if Antipas married Herodias, she would be his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law, all at the same time, right? I'm not making this up. 
If she had a child, that, that means that to her child, she would be her child's mother, their aunt, and their cousin. So like, you know, insert rural Missouri jokes here, right? <laughs> so Herodias agreed to, to leave Herod Philip and marry his brother Herod Antipas, who ruled up in Galilee, on one condition. She wanted him to divorce his, his wife, King Eratos' daughter, which he did. Of course, she ran home to daddy, and daddy came knocking with 20,000 soldiers. And Antipas, not the sharpest tool in the shed, went to battle with 10,000 soldiers against 20,000 soldiers and was defeated, humiliated. And when Luke wrote to Theophilus, he said that Jesus used to tell this story, saying, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask him for terms of peace. Of course, they knew he was poking fun at Herod Antipas. This was extremely subversive of authority and dangerous. When John the Baptist tried this, remember, he criticized Herod's marriage to Herodias, Antipas had him arrested and thrown in jail. He didn't kill him because he was afraid of the Jews. He was, he was kind of a, a coward, Antipas was. But then Herodias, remember, sends her daughter Salome to dance for Herod. He loves it. He says, I'll give you a wish. What, what do you want? You can have anything. And she says, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. This is who that is. Antipas was well known for being into luxury and fine clothes and palaces. And he was generally considered to be kind of shallow and weak. Back then, kings would often re reinforce their rule by putting their picture on the coins of the day, the money. And Antipas tried this, but he lived up in a Jewish region, and they, it was against the law to have any graven images. So you couldn't put a person's image on, on a coin. It was offensive then to them. So he used a symbol, which was um, the image of a reed on the coins. Um, this, is, this is a picture of them. And th these are the same kinds of coins that Jesus would have used as money in, in Galilee. And so the reed became um, a symbol of Herod Antipas's rule. And when the crowds came to hear Jesus preach one time, they told him, you know, Antipas just arrested your cousin, John. And so Jesus asked them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Everybody knew exactly the read he was talking about. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? Why were you wandering in the wilderness? You went to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. He's talking about John. Jesus, too, was a prophet, subversively taking on the Herods of the day speaking often in riddles and in codes that are sadly largely lost on us 2,000 years later, but they were not lost on those first hearers. Everyone knew what he was talking about. And it was pointed, pointed enough that he was, if you follow, if you trace Jesus' movements, he was careful to never go into towns where Antipas had a, a palace. He stayed away from him. He critiqued him and lampooned him from afar, but he never like, confronted him head on, raised an army to, to fight him. Luke um, 
talked about some of this and told Theophilus a little bit about his subversive activities. In, in Luke 8, he says, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support, um, support them out of their own means. So Luke tells us about these women who played this major role in Christ's ministry, and they were, you know, inner circle. They were among his closest followers, which was highly subversive for a Jewish teacher or rabbi at the time. They bankrolled Jesus's ministry, including this detail here, Joanna, wife of Cusa, and Cusa ran Herod Antipas's household, which means Herod Antipas was financing Jesus's ministry. Like, didn't even know it. That's subversive stuff. And you begin to see why Jesus just lived and taught with such confidence. In the midst of, you know, the catastrophe, the wilderness, a very confusing time for his people. He could see his father's hand. Like, you can't make this up. Herod's right-hand man is bankrolling this guy who's undermining his silliness. And so he never cowered. He never bowed his head to the Herod's. They were foxes, right? Reeds swayed by the wind, posers. And when he opposed them, he didn't oppose them with like an, a Napoleonic advance, like strength on strength. He was subversive in his opposition, moving against brutality with gentleness, against violence with peacemaking, against vengeance with reconciliation, against punishment with grace. Thank God, right? And against hatred with love. He just had this, this courage, this faith that his heavenly father was with him and working with him. And it just sort of rubbed off on these early Christians. Eventually, Antipas started looking for him. He sent soldiers out to find him. But Jesus kind of stayed a step ahead of him, although he gets these warnings, like the one from the Pharisees. And he said, leave this place. Herod's coming for you. And Luke replied again, or said, he replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and the third day I will reach my goal. In ancient writings, very often the fox is contrasted with the lion. The lion stood for bravery. Um, the lions hunted and killed their own prey, right? And when the lion had eaten their fill, fill the, the foxes would come along and, and clean up the leftovers. Foxes were pretenders, scavengers, kind of lion wannabes. They were opportunists. And so when Jesus says, go tell that fox, this is not a compliment. Like, look at the cute fox. Um, he was calling Herod Antipas a scavenger, an opportunist, living off the spoils of his dead father. His kingdom was a, a sham. I mean, you can hear the defiance in his tone. Antipas, Antipas is, is the fox. And Christ's heavenly father is the lion. And he is his father's herald of this new kingdom 
proclaiming good news to the poor and release to the captive and the recovery of sight to the blind and the year of the Lord's favor, this day of jubilee that levels the playing field so that everyone has an equal chance. And so Jesus says that he will keep on. He'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today, tomorrow. And on the third day, he says, I'll reach my goal, obviously, an allusion to resurrection, God's ultimate victory of turning death in, into life. Jesus, Jesus didn't fear death because he believed in resurrection. And so he could oppose the powers of the world subversively. And, and this is really a, a key point that I think a lot of us can miss. It's a key point that it's only because he lived so peacefully and gently that he could call out the Herods for their brutality, their exploitation, their fear, their intimidation, their violence. And he was trying to demonstrate in the way he acted for his people and teach them, can't fight fire with fire in the kingdom of God. Violence begets violence. You cannot oppose brutality with even greater brutality. You have to oppose it with some kind of imagination, right? Creativity and some form of gentleness and then just let it collapse under its own weight. But few would listen. Which is why Luke ends this passage with Jesus saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, he just said, went out to the wilderness, what for to see the prophets, but when they show up, you don't like what they say, you stone the prophets. How often I have longed, he said, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until the until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The image he uses here with the hen is, a, it's a barnyard fire and a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings and in the, in the catastrophe, um, the hen will die to save the chicks. That's the image. Unless the chicks don't want to come under the, the wings of the hen. And then they'll be consumed by the catastrophe. Which is what happened. A few de decades later, in AD 70, Jerusalem was sacked, and the temple was destroyed, and Luke watched it happen and wrote it into his gospel. And so the question I kind of want us to, to think about today and just ponder as we hear this weird story is, um, what are the kingdoms? Who are the ki kings? who vie for our allegiance here in the midst of our own catastrophes. I mean, it, like bare minimum count, there are at least five kind of long-running uh, catastrophes or crises that we're facing in our society. A pandemic, economic injustice that is growing inequality, racial injustice and growing inequality, a very threatened democracy that has made our, our world and the West stable, and climate change. Just one of those would be, would be a wilderness experience. There's five. Not to mention just, you know, the crisis of the day in the world, like the war in Ukraine, 
or just the personal catastrophes that crop up in our lives from time to time that just like throw us into the wilderness and we're like, I have no map for this. I'm reeling. What Luke was part of was this really creative response to that situation, to the catastrophe. And because he met it with creativity and imagination and this generativity, um, God used his work to spread this new imagination for the world as God imagined it, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. And to begin to, to give people a sense of the, the um, I don't know, the forgotten or maybe unseen power, like power of gentleness and peacemaking, reconciliation, forgiveness, grace, mercy, love. So much power wrapped up in those things. Over and against the power of the Herods, brutality, violence, vengeance, punishment, fear. Your mind has probably gone there. As I studied this week, I couldn't help, when I was studying the Herods, I couldn't help thinking of Vladimir Putin. Just one in a long line of Herods, you know? Ruling with fear and intimidation and violence. This is just not our way. But the Jesus way is not to oppose that with greater fear, greater intimidation, greater violence. It's to somehow make a leap of imagination that taps into the power of tenderness and gentleness and goodness. Now Jesus, it's interesting when you read this and know the history, Jesus didn't just like let it all slide and stay out of politics. He critiqued and exposed leaders like that. He said their power comes from fear and it's illegitimate. Right? But the, he had this other, I don't know what you would call it, like this other weapon, if, if you could say that which is that he wasn't afraid of death. So what are they going to threaten him with? He had nothing to fear. And so the fear, the intimidation, all, it didn't work on him. I mean, he didn't go looking to get killed, but he wasn't afraid. And here's the thing. That's supposed to be us. And I think it's worth pondering our own response to the catastrophes of the day? Is our response one of fear? Do we just go straight to fighting fire with fire? I'm trying not to look at my wife right now because she's probably chuckling because that's my mode. I power up. When I'm afraid, I, I remember one time she slipped on the ice and I yelled at her. <laughs> that's how deeply this sickness is in me, right? What do we do? We swear allegiance to the kingdoms of the world because they make us feel safe because down deep inside we're really afraid of death. We don't believe in resurrection? Or do we think this guy is who he claimed to be? God in human flesh come to just finally say, you guys, stop, stop with the violence already. Stop with the power. You've got to discover the incredible generative power of tenderness and goodness. And he did it kind of artfully, lampooning the powers of fear and intimidation and all those guys with with these subversive powers of gentleness and grace and peacemaking and all those. I wonder who the Herod figures are 
in your life, like the ones you can name in your personal life, who kind of try to rule over you with fear, intimidation. What if you were no longer afraid? Well, the wilderness. The wilderness is where we learn not to be afraid. This is why we do Lent. We kind of engineer these little moments when we fast and stuff. We're like, ah, I can't reach for the normal things here. I guess I'm just going to have to kind of learn a new, a new way of being. That's what Lent is for. It's kind of practice, practice time in the wilderness. We learn not to be afraid and we choose the way of Jesus instead. Part of how we do this is to engage our imagination and art and music and things that open up whole new worlds for you. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this crazy rabbi, how you came to us in in human flesh, and just every chance he got to teach, he exploded reality. And we confess that we um, we're still making a mess of your world, and we need your help. We really do long to not fear anything, even death. And so that we can live with tenderness and goodness. As we look around at our world and all the kind of catastrophes we're facing anyway, we pray, God, that you would make us part of the solution and not the problem, but that we would Believe, as the scriptures say, that it's not by might or not by power, but by your spirit that the kingdom comes. So help us to live with the spirit of Christ, reigning and ruling in our heart and extending out into this community and extending out from here into the world. Oh, that we could be part of your kingdom come. That's our prayer. Amen invite you to stand if you would and we're going to receive communion now the way we do it at redemption is we just um the ushers will release the rows you come forward row by row be handed the the elements and they'll say remember the body and blood of christ and you can say i will remember or amen or just respond however you feel comfortable the reason we do this is that um, on the night before he was betrayed jesus took a loaf of bread and gave thanks for it and all his guys were around him at supper and he had them all take a piece of the bread and eat it and he said this is my body broken for you and in the same way he took the cup after supper they all drank from the same common cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood he said whenever you get together um, eat this bread drink this cup take my body my blood my life into your life be made out of the stuff I'm made out of and then go out into the world to be salt and light and and you'll see the kingdom come. He said, every time we get together, do this. And so that's why we do it. It's kind of weird. We come forward and get like grape juice and little um, like biodegradable, I don't know what they are, but they're scary, um, wafers. But it's this symbolic thing where we're receiving his life into our life so we can be, so he can live on in the world through us. That's what we're doing. 
So we invite anyone who, you don't have to jump through hoops, anyone who wants to be a part of that, you come to the table. You put this bread and this, this juice in your mouth, you drink God in, and you become made out of the stuff Christ is made out of. Yeah? Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this um, bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come to live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?